0: This podcast, number 845, with Clark Quinn, is brought to you by Dave Crenshaw, author of a new book entitled The Myth of Multitasking, How Doing It All Gets Nothing Done. In my interview with Dave, we discuss his new book, which is a fictional story that exemplifies the challenges that most employees and executives face, and that is the issue of switch tasking. Dave effectively uses a series of characters in the story to inform the reader about the myth of multitasking and how this disrupts not only our productivity, but erodes our most important relationships. Join me in my interview with Dave as we explore many of the behavioral changes you can make to eliminate this challenge. If you want to learn more about Dave Crenshaw, please visit his website at www.davecrenshaw.com. That's D-A-V-E-C-R-E-N-S-H-A-W.com. And now for a featured podcast, please join me in my interview with Clark Quinn about his new book entitled Learning Science for Instructional Designers. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And joining me from Oakland, California, is Clark Quinn. Um, Clark, I know, go way, he and I go way back. Um, his connection is definitely San Diego, uh, because most people know, Clark, that I'm broadcasting this show from San Diego. And um, he has a new book out, and this is the book called Learning Science uh, for Instructional Designers. And I want to clear that up because for cognition to application, it says. I believe in this day of COVID and where we are today, uh, Clark, that um, everybody who has anything to say is trying to figure out how to say it and how to get it out there and what medium to use. And I thought having Clark back on the show would be a good idea because he spent – really a big portion of his life studying this. How is it that we can make learning effective? Clark, good morning to you. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing good, Grant. Um, a pleasure to talk to you again.
0: Yeah, pleasure is is mine. And so very small book, you know, people, mm-hmm. it doesn't take a lot to read this, uh, and but it's packed solid with, um, what I want to say, a lot of research that Clark has done. Um, And Clark, I want to let him know a little bit about you. Uh, Clark Quinn assists Fortune 500 education, government, and not-for-profit organizations in integrating learning science and engagement into their design process. He has a track record of innovation and has consistently led development of advanced uses of technology, including mobile performance support and intelligently adaptive learning systems as well as award-winning online content, educational computer games, and websites. Previously, Clark headed research development for efforts of Knowledge Universe uh, Interactive Studio and held management positions at OpenNet and Access CMC, two Australian initiatives in internet-based multimedia and education. Uh, Extremely well-educated, Clark is a scholar in the field of learning technology, uh, positions at University of North South Wales, University of Pittsburgh's Learning Research and Development Center, and San Diego State University Centers for Research in Mathematics Science Education. He's a PhD in Cognitive Psychology from the University of California, San Diego, after working uh, for Designware, an early education software company. And his books, as I mentioned, uh, go on and on. He's got several of them. You can look him up. His blog is at LearnLets.com. Tweets are uh, Quinn, uh, Q-U-I-N-N-O-V-A-T-O-R, and serves as an executive director of quinovations. Well, that's a long intro, but well worth it because I think this area is fascinating to me. And as you know, we serve a public about 300,000 people regularly that listen to the show now um, that really have an interest. They're in mid-management, they're with companies, they're entrepreneurs, they're trying to figure out which direction to take. And Clark, you're quite the thought leader when it comes to the topics of learning science. Um, You have three previous books, um, uh, this one on the topic of learning design, and here's the deal: with the advent of the technology and how expansive the internet is, and you look at how Zoom's being used, and all this new stuff. What is new, and how are our brains adapting to all the forms of media uh, that are we're trying to use to help people learn?
1: Well, there's two parts to adapting to new technology. So one is. You know, we could be evolving to change. We don't do that that fast. Not so, well. <laughs> so what we do is instead we have to develop skills to do with this. But I want to put the switch the other way around. I want to say what matters is how we design technology to the match the way our brains work. And I don't think we do a good enough job of that. There is plenty of evidence that um, the practices we have in corporations and in society many ways are misaligned with what we know about how our brains work. And there's a huge opportunity to be doing a much better job of that. Um, So we have better understanding of the brain that continues to evolve rapidly. There's new understandings emerging all the time. And then there's technologies, uh, you know, an incredible growth of new ways of looking at things and coming up. And these are great, but we want to align it. Yeah. Yeah. Isaac Asimov famously said, "Famously said, any truly advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic." And we're almost there. You know, I was just talking with somebody the other day. We had a hiccup in something. I was like, "Well, it's not quite magic yet." You know, our uh, you know either of us could potentially have our signal go down just because the technology isn't quite perfect yet. But we have this. Everybody's excited about AI, artificial intelligence, right? I think that's the wrong focus. I think it's on IA or intelligence augmentation, something that uh, Doug Engelbart was pushing for decades. And, uh, we should be looking at the things our brains do well and the things technology as well are very different. And together we're far more formidable than with either one alone. So instead of replacing ourselves with technology, finding out that best combination, I think is the opportunity we have.
0: I think that's very well put. Um, just recently, Stephen Kotler was on the show and he's been on for every one of his books, but the last one uh, is called The Art of Impossible. And he starts off with that concept of magic um, that, you know, every magician, and you mentioned it, which is why I'm bringing it up, has to practice, practice, practice to make that look impossible, right? Um, and yet, no feat is really impossible. That's kind of how he puts it. Now, when you look at the neuroscience that he's been studying about, especially personal growth and, and, and peak performance, um, how do we master learning? What happens chemically, neurosciencely within our brains, right? The brain science uh, to actually do it, which is what he's studying, which is what you study. What is happening with us? We are slow to adapt. He even said that. He said the same thing you said. Um, as a species, we don't seem to be able to rewire, refire, and and change things. So from a learning
1: standpoint, what's new? Um, Actually, not a lot. Um, there is some new stuff coming out. Annie Murphy-Paul's got a new book coming out where she talks about sort of embodied cognition and how um, we're finding... That doing things physically accelerates our ability to visualize things and, you know, uh, make it spatial and how we work together collaboratively. uh, When we do that and externalize our thinking, it gets us better, easier to align. But a lot of stuff isn't really fundamentally changing. And the reason, you know, you said the book can encompasses my research. It really encompasses my research of others' research. Yes, so is- oh, I
0: cited research, which you're yeah. citing all this research. Yeah. Yes.
1: Exactly. And the point is, we have some robust findings. And it turns out neural isn't really the right level to be thinking about it. Because, you know, yes, our learning is neural. When we uh, activate patterns together, the neurons that fire together, wire together. But the way we activate those patterns is through words and images, which is at the cognitive level. And that's really the useful level to analyze. And we have some really robust results that have emerged over the past few decades of research that give us great guidelines for what to do. And that's what I try to do in the book is synthesize that down to be comprehensible and, and applicable to everyday uh, people. And I, you mentioned that the title for instructional designers. And I realized I should have pushed back more uh, rigorously against the uh, publishers because at least should say for instructional design, because when you think about who are instructional designers, that's not just the people who create e-learning or training, it's coaches. They're creating learning experiences where people should be, um, uh, you know, given challenges and then given feedback on it. And that includes teachers and it includes parents even. Yeah. As you far- know,
0: the, the lines are kind of blurred. I work with a company out of Poland called Explain Everything. And, you know, it's a whiteboarding, but it's being used in schools and it's very effective. And, you know, since COVID, everybody's looking for new ways to actually work in the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. And so their biggest market is the classroom. But, you know, you in your chapter entitled Neural to Useful, you address how the brain works to process information and learn. Now, if you would, I think our listeners might like to hear this. And in a simple way, if you would, uh, and it might be difficult, how does this happen? Uh, you know, how does it go from the neural to useful? You know, it's like we, I mean, it. I know for me, I'm, I just speak from experience for my listeners. The way I learn, and it, number one, I'm very visual. So if I go to YouTube and I watch something, usually once or twice, I can repeat that. In other words, I can go fix something or do something, but I'm learning, right? I did it last night. I put together a whole stationary bicycle, right? And I'm just wondering, what is it that that you could tell our listeners that might help them for it to be useful?
1: Well, what's important to understand first is our processing cycle. And so we perceive things through our senses. But what ends up in our working memory, the the our process our perception captures pretty much everything. But our working memory is very limited, so we have this process called attention that sort of focuses and where we you know focus our attention is what we're able to process. And this combination working memory of what we comes in and what we recall and our working memory, which is really our consciousness, is 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 this creation. That we do on the fly, and this is one of the new results of cognitive science, is how situated our cognition is in the current context. And what's there, uh, we can apply, and one of the important lessons is, you know, working memory is limited to chunks, but the question, the issue is what are the chunks? And if it's random arbitrary information, we can only hold a few things. But if those chunks are well-practiced combinations of things, we can bring the whole chunk up. So to make it simple, instead of saying three arbitrary three letters, um, BFI, if we say FBI, suddenly that brings a whole bunch of other information, positive or negative, um, to mind that we can work with together as a chunk. And then, and the way we build those chunks. So that's important. kind of relational. Another, well, that's exactly we, it. That's you true.
0: said in the book, because I was reading that part and I was interested, that we have a tendency to take relational things and put them in silos, you know, almost like, okay, I can pull from that silo, FBI, police, uh, whatever your experience is with the police or something like that. So positive, negative, whatever. And it draws from that. Is that, is that exactly what's going on or
1: no? Um, Yes, but it's combined with the context that will bias that. So we don't pull it up the same way when we think of dog it will be different whether we most recently petted a really friendly dog or whether we were barked at by a rather aggressive dog. Each time we bring up the concept of dog, it's slightly different depending on our recent experience and our past experience. And But the relational is really important because elaborating, connecting is how we get stuck down at a long-term memory. So for the purposes of learning, you need to You can't just repeat it over and over. You have to process it in different ways and strengthen it, which is why just taking rote notes doesn't work as well, for instance, and they're finding out that you have to rephrase what you've heard or do mind maps or do sketch notes. And then the most important thing for learning, and you you referred to uh, your your colleague who does magic, practice. Retrieving it in the way you're going to need to retrieve it in the world in your learning experiences, the most valuable thing you can do to ensure that you're ready to learn. And so when we think about uh, achieving outcomes, changing our abilities, the brain arguably is the most complex thing in the known universe. To change it systematically, reliably, repeatedly, and thinking we can do that with simplistic approaches like bullet points and knowledge tests is just maniacal. Designing appropriate practice is the most useful thing you can do to help people learn.
0: It's uh, its really, I mean, your book, the research that you put into the book, I just want to commend you because, you know, all these things we're talking about for our listeners, they're cited. Um, there's lots of different uh, published cited research papers that he has and gives sightings to know. Now, Clark, you state that our brains are pattern matchers, and meaning makers. How do we choose to give more meaning to something, thus retaining more memory versus less meaning and possibly reduce our recall uh, of that fact or that image or whatever it might be? I know I just said to you before I got on, I'm going to be 67 in July. I've noticed that people recognize me and I know a lot of people from having done all these interviews and years and years of kind of being in the public and I can't recall their names. Uh, yet, you know, they'll see me in the grocery store and I'm like, Oh my God, who, who was that person and where did I meet them? They didn't make much of an impact on me because they know me and I don't know
1: them. So. <laughs> and, and that happens and it's yeah. just because they have pursued you to find this information. And so it's been more salient to them. So you You're right. We're pattern matchers and meaning makers, which goes back to that point I was saying our brains do certain things and technology does certain things and they're not the same. It's really hard to get technology to do pattern matching and meaning making, but they can remember rote information really well, like names. So when we couple it together, if you want to make, if you do need to remember things, however, um, practice is, of course, important, but making it meaningful. In fact, that's the focus of my next work is how do I realize. You know, and people designing learning experiences are actually a fair bit of guidance on learning science, including my <laughs> most recent book. But there's not as much guidance about how do we make it meaningful. And yet, increasingly, research is showing that the emotional side really accelerates the ability to recall things. Yeah, so we need sense. to um, find ways. And it goes beyond the people. Right now, have taken the notion of engagement and doing done a lot of trivial stuff, like tarting it up in a quiz show template. You know, so suddenly, oh, we can drill them in a quiz show template. If you need to remember rote information, that's probably the best way. But most of what we need are not rote information. We need the ability to make better decisions and recognize context and apply mental models. And that takes practice and elaborating it meaningfully and exaggerating the setting. So it's as emotionally important in the learning experience as it will be in the real world, where you know it maybe your job depends upon it, right? Yeah, so- I
0: remember I remember a professor in Writer who came on here uh, not that long ago. I'm trying to remember her name. I just said I can't remember names for life, (laughs) but I need to change that. Um, It was called, but I remember the book title. It was Seeing Around Corners. Uh, You might actually know her, and I think the 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 point that CEOs and people in companies are looking for from the people they hire is the ability to better predict the outcome which I want to lean into this question a little bit. It's not in line with the questions that I gave you, but more intuition. You know, when you t- talk about uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Warren Buffett, and every time you say it, you know, if you want to pull up quotes about intuition, just go type their names in the computer and you're going to find all kinds of it. Um, where do you, would you say in learning science, and I know this is a far reaching kind of question here that intuition you know how we've actually developed our intuition to feel or sense i mean there's four ways you pick up intuition right um i happen to get mine through feelings uh is does this play any role in the learning science arena
1: well yes it does but you have to be really careful i mean that the notion you were saying you learn visual love, certain things you learn visually, but I don't think you uh, learn to ride a bicycle visually. You learn it kinesthetically, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And exactly. Out, uh, and the same thing, feelings, certain things you can learn through feelings, other things you can't. But intuition, we research has really looked at that. And you mentioned prediction. And it turns out one of the fundamental reasons we learn is to predict better, because it turns out. If we make a prediction about the world that's vastly wrong, that can be dangerous, you know, in our early days. And uh, David Geary has talked about separating biologically primary learning from biologically secondary learning. And we're well aligned to do biologically primary learning, which is like socializing and language, but learning complex things that we have created like mathematics and economics is why we need instruction because we're not naturally inclined to do it. Now, um, I brought that up because you mentioned prediction, but to get back to intuition, we use Dino Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Low, points out how we do a lot of intuition as a decision-making process right. because the conscious processing is actually very effortful. And we try and avoid it, so but we should use it in areas we don't have expertise. In areas we have expertise, we can trust our intuition because we've actually baked it into our architecture below our conscious level. Experts literally can't tell you about 70% of what they do. They can tell you what they know, but that did And research has shown this. The Cognitive Technology Group at the University of Southern California has has investigated this and found that our expertise has compiled away. So intuition in an area we um, are experts in actually has more than even we can document. Mm-hmm. But – using intuition outside that area is relatively dangerous and random. Steve Jobs got his aesthetic senses from doing things like calligraphy. He never finished college, but he did take classes in design and calligraphy. And so it was honed through that expertise. And Bill Gates made some mistakes, but he was well honed into, it was really more a triumph of marketing over matter. He didn't develop the operating system, but he tracked trends and developed expertise in that. Right, right. He was a good businessman. Yes, exactly. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, and it's interesting. And then you state that the more we reprocess the same knowledge, you mentioned that just a minute ago. Practice, right? Yeah. Uh, the more automated it becomes. You mentioned that we automate what we need to, and learning. Are leaving our minds free to focus on the important things. Okay, I get that. Um, how does the process of automating certain le- learning help us in the speed of processing data and solving problems? Because today, more than ever, whoever's listening to this out there, um, the if they're working inside a company or middle management or even upper management, it, because things are moving so fast, the reason I mentioned speed, the processing speed needs to go up, including, you know, I remember David Allen saying, "Hey, look, you can only put so much inside the the brain, uh, you know, because we only have so much RAM, right?" And unlike that, we can't change our RAM that's in our brain. I'm not certain of that anymore. He used to say that, but the reality is, if I want to take this iMac that I'm sitting in front of and put another you know, 64K or whatever of external memory or an internal memory, I can do that. Um, how, how do we do that as people? Do we just start to trim? Is it like trimming a tree saying, okay, we got to we got to have room for uh, the stuff that's really important and the stuff that's not so important. Let's just get rid of it.
1: Well, technically, um, you bring up a lot of stuff, but I want to unpack some of it. Interesting, like April Wren, who's coming out with a book called The Flux Mindset, Eight Superpowers for Living. She's studied deeply how to cope based upon her own personal experience. One of her mantras is to speed up, slow down. <laughs> so we don't necessarily just want to go faster. We want to figure out, take time for reflection. We actually are more productive. But um, we do want to automate those things. Uh, that does speed us up because it comes immediately instead of us having to constantly develop it. You think about training pilots. You want them, it turns out, you know, they practice incredibly for things they hope never to face. You know, emergency situations, they hope they never have an you go out, but they train for it just in case. You literally need them to respond before they think about it. You need that automation. And so that's what that extreme practice will give you. And taking the things you know you need to be able to process sort of subconsciously, is a matter of choosing what we need to be able to have and what do we want to still be consciously reflecting on. And that takes um, some deeper analysis on what exactly is important in making these decisions.
0: Well, like you mentioned earlier, it takes a lot more effort to do do the conscious route versus the subconscious, which already has programmed and automated it. Um, And, you know, the power of suggestion is really, really uh, very powerful, um, whether you're doing it through hypnosis or you're doing it through whatever neuro-linguistic programming or however it is, it happens, right? Um, in the chapter four, you discuss the facts that we humans are not a lot, we're not logical as one would think we are. Um And I would totally agree with that statement. Um, Why is that so? And how does our logical decision-making get processed in our brain? And why is this important, uh, you know, to this learning process?
1: Well, it it turns out, you know, evolution shaped our uh, cognition. And we've developed incredibly powerful uh, opportunities out of that architecture. The fact that you and I can be talking from Walnut Creek down to San Diego. Yeah. And still see one another in effectively right. real time. That's amazing. Right. But despite that, we have some systematic flaws. No one architecture can be all er- perfect in everything. Everything, the way you're going to structure it has limitations. So we have, we remember things by meaning, not by rote typically, whereas technology, as I pointed out, is, is the opposite. And Uh, we have, if we do things a certain way several times, we're more likely to do it that way, even if it's not the best. We fall into habits and we've developed mechanisms to support this. We put information in the world like checklists to keep us from skipping steps and, you know, creating calculators to do rote calculations that our brains can't complement. So the important thing is to (coughs) be recognize our limitations and put in place that support for those limitations to make us as effective as possible. And it used to be we had to do it with paper and, and beads on, on metal poles. But now we have this, you know, almost perfectly programmable support capability that really is nice. And it's just a matter of making sure that we use it in the most effective way. And that's about design. And it goes beyond learning design. What can be in the world? Because it actually is reliably hard to get things in the head. And you mentioned, you know, how do we, should we trim it? It turns out that notion of unlearning is really a misleading term. You can't unlearn things. You have to learn over it. You have to learn, do it again and again in a new way until you don't automatically revert to the old way. Interesting. Um, That's uh, that's that's a good point. And we don't seem to forget anything because even things you think you've forgotten, it may be that a sudden smell or a sudden piece of music or a sudden sound will suddenly bring it all back. I'm sure most of your listeners have had that experience. Yeah. And so what we have.
0: That comes down to the emotional part. I mean, the senses being uh, stimulated. And uh, I guess we don't know that much about how the brain works that way to refire or or say kind of ignite a part of the brain that brings back a memory from who knows childhood something. I know I've been having more of those lately than i than i've ever had and i don't know if that's just because when you age you start to get a little melancholy and you look at things and when you see see things that comes up but in your chapter on let's get emotional you state that cognitive science recognizes that there are drivers uh, beyond our cognitive uh, aspects Um, what are they and can you comment on
1: them for the listening audience if you would Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting, a colleague, Matt Richter, who works for the Piagi group, um, pointed me to self-determination theory by DC and Ryan. And that did a much deeper analysis of levels of motivation and what makes people uh, invest their effort. And I was, because I don't, you know, made a distinction between extrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. I think intrinsic yeah. motivation is really important. They make it very clear that intrinsic motivation is this unique thing where you really want to learn it. And that's really hard to engineer. Well, they, motivation
0: uh, really at, at its base root is the uh, ability to take action towards something, correct? In other words, we're motivated to do something. I asked Stephen Kotler this. I was like, you know, he talks a lot about external and inten- in- intrinsic and extrinsic drivers. Um, but then when I asked him a question, which I'll pose to you as well, because I think it's fascinating. I said, so what's the difference between motivation and inspiration? And he kind of laughed and he said, well, scientifically, I have a definition for motivation. I don't have a definition for inspiration. And by the way, people tell me my books are inspiring and I don't even know how to respond to that. And I thought that was actually quite unusual um, because you you look at the terms and you go, well, inspire is from within. And this motivation is, for the most part, I've always referred to it as external." Because when you look at the drivers, you say the external drivers are more money, fame, sex, whatever it might be. The internal drivers are passion, purpose, you know, wherever we're going there. So, what would you what would you comment on that? I mean, you know, this is great because we're kind of getting into an area which I think is pretty juicy for our audience.
1: Um, well, I think that's one thing. I, I take two meanings of inspiration. One is you know, you're inspired a new idea. And that's sort of part on the innovation side. And I do talk about that in some of my work, uh, because quinovation is, you know, and being the quinovator on Twitter, uh, I'm very interested in innovation, but there's the other one of inspiring people to take action. And that's part of that. Um, in DC and Ryan's model, the intrinsic motivation is I want it. I, and that's hard to generate from an outside perspective, but they have several levels below that, you know, and. There's gamification, extrinsic motivation, which actually there's a lot of reasons not to do that if you can do it badly, but also it tends to dissipate quickly. Then there's sort of guilting people into it in their model, but the next level up is recognizing you need it, and that may be what he's able to do when he says his work is inspiring. Help people recognize that they do need this, and that's what I argue. I have a separate initiative, what I mentioned, to make it meaningful when where I'm looking at. How can we reliably, repeatedly help people understand that they do need this? Mm. And I apply that to the consequences of having that knowledge or not having that knowledge. And you can do it humorously or dramatically. <laughs> either one. Um, I have a pen, a, a, a personal penchant for, Uh, humorously portraying the negative consequences, sort of black humor. What's the difference
0: between needing it and wanting it? I mean, it's like, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you say, I'm going to self-actualization, but at the bottom, I have a need for clothing, shelter, food, whatever. You know, when uh, there was a comment made that once you get your certain needs met, and I guess the word is used, let's just call it needs. The rest of it is kind of it's a want right so i you how would you explain that one
1: well it's for your personal goals or your role so if you think about um, you know in your job i don't know this yet yet this next level of stuff you know i know i need that because then i'll be so much better able to help these people okay uh, versus want is that's something i care about personally for me it's not related to my job it's not related to my Family stuff. It's I have this curiosity about you know some people love fishing, uh, some people love backpacking, some people love travel, some people love cooking. Where does that come from? I think we really don't know except in formative experiences that we have little bit ability to control. So we can tap into curiosity if we can create. So in my model of how to motivate people at the top level, if you can get them to. to have a mismatch between their expectations and something. You've asked them a question. They think they know the answer and they get it wrong. You've tri- sparked that curiosity because I thought I knew about this and I didn't. So now I'm, I'm driven to want to learn about, it. but uh, that's harder to do reliably, repeatedly. So if you, you know, it, for inspiration, tapping into that, finding, helping people and giving them frameworks that apply across whatever they love is really useful at the next level down. If you need need them to learn about it, you have to help them understand why they need it. And that's, I think, we don't do a good enough job at. I think we know how to do it, but a lot of people just ignore it when they design learning experiences. I pointed to a faculty member whose syllabus talked about, you're going to learn these important things, but he didn't say why it was important. And in so much e-learning and training, we're going to present this really important stuff to you, but they don't tell, connect it connected to the learner and to give them the whiff of what's in it for me. Why do I believe it's important
0: yeah why do i need it i mean if it comes down to this desire to want to master something i get it okay i'm gonna i'm gonna take it on but frequently you're right they're saying you're going to learn this but they don't ever tell me why i need it and i think there's a huge disconnect there although a lot of people will go down the path and buy the course or do whatever just from from that but Um, I think as you become a lot more astute and discerning, you look at why do I need this? Because, you know, you, based on the number of courses that are out on the internet today that are on some e-learning platform, I mean, you, you would die before you'd finish them all. Um, And and you
1: mentioned just briefly, you mentioned, you know, motivation is is, uh, being willing and in cognitive science, we call that conation. You're, your intent to learn is absolutely the factor we're addressing with this, and that's yes. that's such an important element. You're absolutely right.
0: So you know the the uh, master of flow, the professor from Chicago. Uh, how do you say his name again? Simon uh, Mahalia. Yeah. So you cited him in the book, and you state that building confidence comes from overcoming challenges. Um, what are the optimal levels of challenge, and when is challenge enough? And when is it too much for us to break through our comfort zones? And where does that learning occur? You know, it's like, okay, I can reach. So people say, well, you ought to have smart goals or you ought to have BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goals. And sometimes I find that when people do that, they set them out of bounds and limits, meaning those are way stretch goals and they don't make them and then they're disappointed. So where is that happy medium?
1: (laughs) It's it's interesting to ask. And I make this alignment between Zix and Mahalia's flow. And there was a guy named Lev Vygotsky, a Russian psychologist, who came up with this notion of zone of proximal development. To me, they're essentially the same. And the problem with, you know, trying to define that absolute level is it depends on where you're at. Because as you get more capable, those levels change. The notion is, if it's too difficult, it's frustrating. Right. That's not a good point. If it's too easy, it's boring, and it's in between there where it happens. And in Vygotsky sort of said, "That's where that's flow true. is." That's where flow is, but that's yeah. also where learning happens. And if uh, Raf Costa wrote about a theory of fun, he pointed out that games are the reason games are fun is because they are learning, but it's not trivial fun. It's what Seymour Papert called hard fun. The notion here though is what Pogoski said is there are things you can't do no matter how much help you get. And that's that frustrating zone as it's in And there are things you can do uh with one hand tied behind your back, basically. And those are the boring things and that's not. but they're the thing the things you can do only with some support. And that's where learning happens, and that's how you define those, you know, uh that optimal challenge level is where it's things you can do with support that's where you get in the flow you know um where you're uh, Mahali, it's not quite exactly the same because Mahaly was talking about you're doing things but there's just enough challenge and you're in that flow and the support may be from your teammates or the tools and your ability to, to take advantage of it but that's um for the purposes of learning it's really that right level of where you, a little support gives you the ability to focus and acquire that next skill. And Anders Ericsson talked about deliberate practice. It's got to be the right next thing for you. If you're learning tennis, learning how to do a stroke properly, how to, you know, where to grip the racket and how to swing and follow through, is appropriate for you at one level. At the next level, it's going to be more about where do you place the ball. And so it's, a continually evolving level of challenge if you're doing just the right next thing. He was the one who quoted that sort of 10,000 hours of practice that's been debunked um, uh, a bit. But his point was it's not just any practice. It has to be the right next practice that will develop you at the rate that's appropriate for you. And so it's a complex concept, but we can make good estimates and we can tune it by testing and improving
0: well, I'm going to tell my listeners, uh, go get a copy of this book. If anything that has been said today intrigues you or you're interested in or you're you're building something where you're trying to teach or teach other people, um, this book would be great for you. Uh, it says instructional designer. You don't have to be an instructional designer. I think you just have to have a passion for uh, probably teaching. How could you better teach someone something? Uh, and uh, Clark's book does a great job of giving you not only the research, but the tools. And Clark, if they wanted to learn more about you, they're going to go to ClarkQuinn.com. Is that correct? Or do you want them to go to Quinovation?
1: Quinovation.com is-
0: Quinovation. So we're going to put a link in our blog uh, to uh, uh, Clark's site, and it would be Quinovation. Um, how about the blog LearnLets.com? Are we sending them there as well?
1: Yes. Um, okay. that end up appearing in books and presentations or workshops tend to show up on my blog first. And if you need help sleeping at night, great place to go. But <laughs> like well Whatever so else. we're
0: going to send them to quinovation and it's www.quinnovation.com, and there you can learn more about quinn uh, he's an author of more than just this one book uh he's got many books previous to this you can go to amazon and check those out we'll also have links to amazon for this book and your other books as well um and is there anything else that you'd like to leave the listening audience with before we part Clark?
1: Um, not really. I uh, just, you know, stay curious, my friends and uh, keep learning. And thanks. Well, it's for been
0: a been a pleasure having you on inside personal growth. Uh, always an honor to speak with somebody who's studying learning as a science. Um, I think a lot of people don't really realize how much of a science there is to it. Um, you really shouldn't just strap things together, you know, like pull it all together and say, okay, here's the course. Um, so I appreciate it so much. Thanks so much, Clark, for being on and joining us from Walnut Creek. And uh, this is Greg Voison with Inside Personal Growth signing off.